This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. some light reading in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks, your official Star Trek books and comics podcast here on Trek FM. I am Bruce Gibson, one of your hosts, and with me, as he always is, Mr. Dan Gunther. Hey, uh, Mr. Dan Gunther. Yeah, you know, I've gotten used to being called Mr. from uh, teaching recently, and I, I still don't really like it. And I, I don't know. Mr. Gunther's my dad. I don't, I don't understand that. <laughs> so that kind of bothers you when a student's like, Mr. Gunther, and you're like, ugh, that's not who I am. But you can't tell them to call you Dan, right? No, exactly. Actually, it's fun uh, teaching in Korea I was always Dan teacher, which I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. I like that. But uh, Oh, yeah. yeah. Maybe you can tell your students to call you Dan teacher. <laughs> Probably wouldn't fly here, no. <laughs> or Mr. Teacher. How about that? Mm. Mr. Teacher. I'll put up with Mr. Gunther for now. <laughs> well, you know, in the American Southeast, there's a lot of, you know, it would be not to teachers, but to other adults, it's typically Mr. Dan, like be first name you know so oh yeah yeah maybe they could call you mr dan yeah that wouldn't be so bad i guess <laughs> mr dan the man right totally yeah <laughs> <laughs> i wonder how long i'd last in a classroom if i introduced introduced myself as that <laughs> <laughs> or you know you could always be captain gunther yeah, that's definitely not going to fly. <laughs> okay. I was just trying to tie it into Star Trek because that's what we're here to talk about is Star Trek, right? Oh, right, right. Star Trek. Yes. Yes. Well, we always <laughs> talk about Star Trek even when we're not on a podcast. Exactly. I mean, what else do we do with in our lives? I don't, I can't think of anything else. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> so and that's why we like Star Trek because we have nothing else to do. But no, uh, let's go ahead to the news items and... One of the things I threw in here is the cover for Star Trek Discovery, Fear Itself. Yes, we talked about this on a previous episode, but the cover we were looking at that time was from the audiobook. And now we have the cover, the real cover to the book in front of us. And it's very similar to the audiobook cover, 
with having Saru on the front cover, but instead of a white background, we actually have a background that is purplish blue with a planet in the background. It feels more in line with the previous two novels. And I, I don't remember if I said it on the show or not, but I didn't feel the white background fit in with the other two novels, but now seeing this one, it does. So I feel like the three novels together look well. Yeah, no, I do remember you saying uh, that it didn't really flow together. And this one, like you say, it fits much more with the other two that we've gotten. And it's still kind of uh, more of a purple background than blue, which I really did like from the first one. Uh, but now it's not just on a white you know, background behind it. It's got some other stuff going on and a different publicity photo of Saru that they've used. He's, he's not doing the Jedi mind trick hands. He's kind of doing a steepled index fingers look, which is pretty cool. Yeah, that's true. And I don't know, for all we know, that audiobook cover we saw was maybe an early version, not the final. So we'll have to wait to see when that officially comes out to see if the cover of that looks any different. Yeah, I heard that cover has kind of disappeared, apparently, from official places. I haven't checked that myself, but somebody was saying that. So Yeah, eh, that's probably true, because I think they'll probably keep the look consistent. Mm-hmm the book cover so but anyway this book is coming out july i'm sorry not july but june 5th of this year and it's a novel by james swallow so look for star trek discovery fear itself coming to a bookstore or an online digital ebook store near you so let's go (laughs) on to a comic review that we have we have star trek new visions number 21 and the title of this one is the enemy of my enemy And this photo comic, as the previous ones of the New Visions comic line, uh, this comic uses photos from the series that works into a comic form and Photoshop things around. It's done by John Byrne. And he not only does the imagery, but also the story behind this. And in this story, we start off with Captain Kirk and Kor. So I really love seeing Kor in the comic. But there was something very unique about Core. Did you pick that up? Did you pick up on that, Dan? Ooh, I'm not sure what you're referring to there. Well, I want you to look at the first page. Okay. Because you'll notice it on a panel on the right that this is the core that we've seen from the original series, the actual photos, but they put slight ridges in his forehead. Huh. I... I don't know how I hadn't noticed that. Now I'm looking through at all the other panels and yeah, like at first I thought, oh no, his brows just kind of furrowed, but yeah, no, every picture. Yeah. He's got slight forehead ridges. I'm kind of kicking myself for not noticing that. (laughs) Good eye. I thought the same thing too. I thought it was just his brow. And then as I went through, I was like, I think that really is ridges and every, yeah. And I started picking up on that. So I thought that was a little interesting. So now that you've seen that he's got some forehead ridges and this is the core we have from the original series, does it work for you or does it bother you that they would change his look slightly? Well, I think it's not a bad touch because the core that we see when he shows up in Deep Space Nine has fully formed ridges and is the next generation looking Klingon type. So maybe this is uh, a cure they've concocted and he's kind of in a transitory stage here or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I thought the same thing. I thought you could spin it that way for sure. Cause like you said, we see him later with, with the ridges, 
But anyway, this story uh, starts off with Kirk and Kor on some alien spaceship, and they they're trying to escape. They were captured as prisoners. And so it's almost like a buddy cop movie in a sense, because these two are have to, having to work together to escape. And of course, they don't get along perfectly, but they seem to work well pretty much for the most part to get out of there because they both have the same mission that they're trying to accomplish, and that's to escape from this alien ship and get back home. Mm-hmm. And another thing that I think both Kor and Kirk would never want to admit is they're a lot alike. So... You know, they have a lot of skills that complement each other here that, uh, you know, basically they're forced to work together because of uh, a ploy that has been employed by their captors. But, you know, I, I really think they work well together, which is interesting. Yeah. And I think that's the fun part about the comic is just seeing the two of them working together to accomplish the same goal. They're like, like you said, they're they're more similar than they want to admit. And I think maybe even one of the Enterprise crewmen said something similar to that. But it's like they're brothers from other mothers, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <I> mean, totally. <laughs> but uh, and then that's the B storyline is as Kirk and Kor are trying to escape and which they do get on the ship that Kor finds and uh, it's low on fuel. And, you know, Kirk is ribbing core for picking a ship that's low on fuel i mean they're like bickering almost like brothers in a sense mm-hmm. but the other storyline is of course the enterprise crew trying to figure out where is kirk he's missing he was on some other ship and they went there and the ship isn't there anymore it was destroyed but they've come to determine that kirk survived that and now they're on that mission of trying to figure out where's kirk and it's spock doing all his analysis and putting clues together of where they might be and the crew's questioning him and how does he know that and how does this work out it's very typical star trek in that sense but i think Mm -hmm. the most interesting part of it is the whole relationship between core and kirk as we've been discussing yeah, I would agree totally. The uh, the onboard the Enterprise stuff feels a bit paint by numbers, but, you know, still interesting because I like Star Trek and, <laughs> you know, it feels very familiar. But this Kirk and Core dynamic is really interesting for sure. And I like how at first it's a little confusing because they kind of drop you right in the middle of the action and you kind of have to figure out, oh, what's happened and kind of you're almost along with the Enterprise crew piecing it together. As as we go, well, I'm which glad is an you, interesting way to do the yeah, story. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because I'm not really, I don't really remember, and maybe it was identified here, but I'm not clear as to why this alien race captured them. Hmm. I so at the end they mentioned that there there's a war, and I think the war is between the Klingons and the these aliens. So I'm not sure how the Federation and Kirk got entwined in it. There's a a bunch of things in this story. Like I said, I like how they drop you in the middle of the action, but at the same time for the first few pages, even just through the artwork and stuff, I was a little confused as to what exactly was happening. And then for the story as a whole, I'm still a little fuzzy on some of the details as well, unless I really missed something. No, I'm glad you said that because that's how I felt too. And I do agree the first few pages there were some images where I really was looking at them like, wait, what is going on here? Like I really had a hard time identifying it. And especially the last two panels before you get to the title page, 
I wasn't sure what I was seeing being used, and I assume it was later that's the alien gun mm-hmm. that that core grabs or whatever. But at first, I was really confused as to what it was he was putting to Kirk's head. Yeah, me too. Because it, a, it's it's a weapon that looks very odd. You know, it doesn't look like a typical weapon. And then B, you know, you have to kind of figure out that Kor is threatening to kill Kirk and something is stopping him from doing so because of what Kirk says. You'd be committing suicide, which we figure out later why they think that. But it's it's really confusing. And artwork-wise especially, like you said, in those two pages, I was really confused. Well, then what do you think of the aliens in here? They almost Their skin is almost like an uh, alligator, but they don't have long snouts. Mm-hmm. They're in, an interesting design. I like that it's something a little more creative. And again, that's something you can do in this format. I think things like that, John Byrne is getting better at doing with this format. So it doesn't look quite as unfinished and unpolished as maybe some of the aliens in the earlier issues do. Um, and I like the scale of them. I like that they're so big. I thought that was kind of a neat, uh, twist on things, which is another thing that makes that weapon look so weird. (laughs) Yeah. There's just certain things about them that look all a little weird and they, they kind of remind me the, the shape of their body, their feet, and their hands reminded me of the the pet on the original Bastar Galax- Galactica boxy hmm. or whatever. Oh yeah. <laughs> so that's what it kind of reminded me of, just like the shape of the feet and the hands and arms and all that stuff. So, but mm-hmm. uh, no, I mean, I think it's it's good. I don't think it's one of the the better ones in this series. But again, I think seeing Kirk and Core together uh, made it a lot of fun. Yeah, definitely. I did appreciate that. And uh, that's one thing John Byrne has down is the voice of the characters. So Kirk's ribbing of Kor, it felt very like William Shatner in the original series. And uh, even Kor, for as little as we actually saw him in the original series, it was kind of cool to be able to hear John Colicos's voice <laughs> as as Kor here. Yeah. Well, and then the other thing about this comic is every issue has a preview of the next issue, which I typically avoid. But when I saw a little bit of the first page of the next issue and I saw it's Pike and the crew from the cage and it's a Mm -hmm. unique story to that, I'm really looking forward to this next issue. Yeah, well, in this case with the Pike story, it's uh, as far as I can tell, it's a complete second story. Oh, no. I didn't even read it. <laughs> oh, shoot. Because there is actually a preview at the very end uh, of a Gary Seven um, Guardian of Forever story, it looks like. Oh, I'm seeing uh, that now. Yeah. Yeah. I actually, I'm just seeing that now. Yeah. I stopped way too soon because when I just, like I said, I try to avoid the previews because I just want to be surprised. And so when I saw the next thing come up, I was like, oh, nope, not going to read it. It's a preview, but you're right. I'm looking through it now. It's like a short story. Mm-hmm. Well, that's part <laughs> of our review then. I'm not going to say anything, Dan, but what did you think of that one? <laughs> I actually, at first, the story's a little weird. So this guy shows up and he's right out of an H.G. Wells novel. Um, and you're kind of wondering, what the heck is up with this guy? What's going on? And it 
I was kind of rolling my eyes to start with like, okay, like what is this going to be about? But by the end, I actually really enjoyed this story and I'm not going to give it away. Um, especially for you, Bruce, because I think you should read this. It's a good one. Um, but, uh, it's an unexpected ending and the very last, I have to shout out on the very last page, there's a little bit with Scotty that is just really, really cool with regards to his character and what ultimately happens to him in Star Trek. It's kind of a nice little tie into that. So, Oh, that's awesome. Uh, yeah. So I, re- I recommend this, the second part, the second story. I think I liked it more than the first part, which uh, I actually really liked as well. So, well, why don't you go ahead and do the rest of the show? I'm going to go and read this story now. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> no, Did you no, actually no. read uh, the novel we're doing, Collision Course? <laughs> oh, we were supposed to read that? <laughs> yes, of course I read it. Of course I did. I went all the way to the end, unlike this comic, right? <laughs> nice. <laughs> all right. Well, let's get into it. Let's go into the feature and talk about William Shatner's Academy Collision Course. So, Collision Course is the last of the Shatner verse novels, unfortunately. So, he had three trilogies, so nine books, and now the last one, number 10, is Academy Collision Course. And this came out in October of 2007. Mm -hmm. And I remember this book coming out. I bought it. I have the hardcover. And... I also remember at this time that we knew there was a new movie coming. And I don't remember for sure if we knew that the new reboot or Kelvin timeline movie, whatever we want to call it. I don't remember at the time if I knew that there was going to be a story in there about the Academy years or not. But I remember when I was reading this book, I remember thinking, I wonder if the movie will be similar to this. And we'll kind of talk more about that as we get into it. But um, I just think it was interesting how this story um, takes takes place in the Academy, knowing that we were getting a movie that was going to look at the early years of Kirk and Spock, even to the point that there's a statement at the beginning of this book that says, quote, the plot, storylines, and historical narrative presented in Star Trek Academy Collision Course constitute an imaginative work deriving solely from the author's unique personal vision. Mm-hmm. And that does not appear in any other Shatnerverse book. No, which is funny because on the face of it, if you take that sentence and replace the title of the book with any Star Trek novel or any episode of Star Trek ever written, it would be just as true. Like, it's funny that, you know, basically it's say, stating that this is an imaginative work and it's based on the writer's unique vision. Well, yeah, like anything ever written. <laughs> so it's kind of funny they felt the need to like separate it out somehow, but I don't know. I <laughs> It's funny. Yeah, and at the time I remember seeing that thinking, oh yeah, they're trying to distance themselves from the movie and say like, this isn't connected to the movie, this is different, you know, the movie that's coming out in two years or such. But this isn't the first time they've done something like this. It wasn't this same statement, but back in... Gosh, I guess the late 80s, early 90s, there were some novels that they did this in. And I, I specifically hmm. remember it in, in Vendetta by uh, Peter David. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, we we that would be an interesting episode, actually, to delve into 
uh, the reasons for that and the whole kind of vendetta, I guess, that certain segments in Paramount and one office in particular had against some of the novel writers and one novel writer in particular. Um, but that's, a, that's a whole nother story, but yeah, I think that's where that stemmed from. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. So this reminded me of back then when, when that was going on. So, <laughs> but yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, it's, in other words, it's not canon, right? There's that C word, which we'll talk about again later. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, that word is going to come up again. <laughs> So now this book starts off in the Academy years, but Kirk is not a member of Starfleet Academy and nor is Spock. And just be upfront and tell you, McCoy is not even in this book. So we've got, and, and really none of the other Enterprise crew members. We're just talking about Kirk and Spock in this novel. Mm -hmm. And again, no spoilers right now, but we'll kind of alert everybody to spoilers the further we get in, in case you haven't read the book. But so Kirk is not in Starfleet Academy. As a matter of fact, he hates Starfleet Academy. He does not like Starfleet at all. But he... He would not join Starfleet in a box. He would not join it with a fox. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's very Dr. Seuss. <laughs> <laughs> so the, he's running from... Uh, the Starfleet Academy security officers because he stole a Starfleet car. And he did this by using his girlfriend's codes who is in the Academy. And then as he's running from security with his girlfriend, he ends up in like a CD bar and gets into a bar fight, which by the way, ends up being with Spock. And again, this is very early on in the book. So no real spoilers. And then he starts arguing with security officers. And it's like, is this James T. Kirk? Or is this just a punk? And <laughs> that's kind of the topic I want to start off with, Dan, with you. And it's like, you know, what are your thoughts about Kirk in this book? Yeah, I had kind of some of the same questions to start with. Uh, it really reminded me, and again, we'll get into the timing of the writing of this book and what else was happening with Star Trek at the time. But it reminded me of the Kelvin timeline Kirk that we see in Star Trek 2009, who's I think Pike uh, refers to him as like the worst repeat offender in the Midwest or something like that or something like, I don't know. But uh, then I started thinking of uh, the novel Best Destiny by Diane Carey. And this is kind of a take on Kirk that we've seen over the years a few times. And I, I could be wrong, but I think there's even a small reference to that book in this book where um, at one point an official is going over Kirk's record and he says, oh, nothing really major, a few un unauthorized trips with friends from home or something like that. And it's like, oh, that's how... Diane Carey's novel Best Destiny starts as they're all running off on some unauthorized trip, basically. So I don't know. I could be wrong, but I thought, hey, that's kind of a neat little um, reference there. But yeah, this is kind of a take on Kirk that we have seen before. So I kind of initially bristled against it, but then reconciled in my head with other things we've seen with about Kirk before. And is this is your first time reading this one, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, this is the first time I've ever read it. Okay. So obviously, because I mentioned earlier that I read it when it came out, so this is my second time. And I remember the first time I read it, it 
didn't bother me as as much as it bothered me now. I'm not saying it hmm. was a huge issue for me or anything, but it felt a little off to me. Like I just thought they made him a little too arrogant, a little too wild. Like I wasn't sure if this really felt like Kirk to me. But you're right. Yeah. I mean, it ties in well with Best Destiny. And when uh, Star Trek 09 came out, I remember watching the movie and thinking about this book and how the character seemed somewhat familiar with what I read in the book that we saw in the movie. And so I liked mm. that at the time. But this one just feels like a little more punkish to me in this character than those others. Yeah, I I do feel like it gets pushed a little bit too far in some areas. Um, I have to say it really actually helped because of the age he was, 17, I think, in this novel. I was picturing basically a young Chris Pine in my head playing Kirk, which kind of worked, oddly enough, even though that version of the character hadn't been seen by the time this novel came out. Some of the dialogue just felt better coming out of Chris Pine's mouth. And I think that's a little bit telling because I've always felt that as good a job as Chris Pine did playing Kirk, and I do enjoy some aspects of those movies, I always felt that he played more of a caricature of Kirk than the actual James T. Kirk we know from the original series and the original films. So I don't know, maybe that's that's saying something about my feelings about this book because yeah, it, it it does feel a little bit, I don't want to say cartoonish, but just a little bit over the top sometimes. Yeah. And this time reading the book, I did the same thing. I was visualizing Chris Pine and Zachary Quinto. I mean, it almost felt like I was reading another universe of the Kelvin universe, like another timeline of the Kelvin universe, because I was picturing those actors playing these characters. And again, I remember when the movie came out, I kept thinking about this book that it just felt like that it tied in really well, not in continuity, but the way the characters were represented. Um, mm -hmm. But again, a little too far, I think, with Kirk. But at the same time, I feel like it works for this book. If you can put that aside, I think it really makes a fun read. Yeah, the the book has a unique tone that I think everything kind of works together with it. And we'll get a little bit more into that, I think, when we get into spoilers. But uh, there's almost, I mean, I mean the, the story of the book has a formula to it that if you compare it to a lot of popular movies and popular stories, I think you'll see is is very familiar and including Star Trek 2009, actually, as well. So... I think it works for this book, um, which kind of comes back to that little disclaimer at the beginning that kind of sets this apart from the rest of the Star Trek universe for better or worse, I guess. Yeah. Now it's making me wonder if that disclaimer is really in there because they thought the book was a little too far to one side or something or, but no, <laughs> I, I do think I remember reading at the time it was because of the new movie was, was coming out, but, um, I often felt that many of the Shatnerverse novels feel like they could play as a movie, that they felt very thematic, like a theatrical film. Mm. And, uh, and it's like you're saying, I can see this too. It just, it feels more like a fast paced movie. Yeah. Like it doesn't feel like a Star Trek episode. It feels more like a popcorn movie. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, all of that said, I, I can't wait for that blockbuster to come out where Kirk and Picard take a vacation on Bajor. That's just, just a riveting movie. It's so great. Well, <clears> did <throat> I say all the Shatnerverse novels? <laughs> no, <laughs> I meant didn't. most of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, most of them. <laughs> yeah, that Sorry. one I'm still reeling over. I don't understand. Anyway. Um, <laughs> I'll stop. I'll stop beating the dead horse. I promise <laughs> you and Brandon. I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> so the other thing we see in here are Kirk's father named Joe, but no, he is George Kirk, but he goes by Joe, his middle name, which I thought was interesting too. I mean, anyway, I'm not going to get started in that, but I, again, I was picturing, uh, m- the movie, um, Gosh, and I can't remember his name right now. Thor. Chris, uh, Chris Hemsworth. Chris yeah. Hemsworth, yes. <laughs> if he's going to be in the next movie, I don't know. Remember, they made that announcement, but we'll find out later. But Chris Hemsworth, I was picturing him as Joe, his uh, mm-hmm. Kirk's father, which I think is funny, too, because the book always refers to James Kirk as Kirk, and Joe is Joe, and his brother Sam is Sam. And I'm like, well, they're all Kirk. Mm-hmm. But they, <laughs> you remember, Kirk said to Sam, and I'm like, they're both Kirk. <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> it, it gets a little bit confusing what i want to okay so george kirk senior is always mad at his son for going by sam which is his middle name so why is why does he go by joe and why is he so ticked off that his son goes by his middle name it's like oh he doesn't want to be called by the name he was given well neither do you you hypocritical i i don't uh, that I don't know. That really bugged me on every page that that came up. I don't know why. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I I don't know why I didn't even think about that. But yeah, he makes such a big deal that that uh, Jim's brother goes by Sam. <laughs> yet mm. George goes by Joe. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. I mean, I think the author's trying to say something about how they're more alike than unalike, but it's just such an obvious thing that. It actually really bugged me. <laughs> okay, so I'm gonna in my head canon, I'm gonna picture that George Senior, his parents named him in a certain way that they they called him by his middle name Joe, and everybody knew him as Joe, and so he's continued to be called by Joe, but he hates the fact that he's called by his middle name, and he doesn't want that for his sons, and so when his oldest son starts going by his middle name, it just ticks him off because he didn't want him to do the same thing. Okay, I'll go with it. I feel a lot better now. Thanks, Bruce. <laughs> and I only say this as someone who goes by his middle name because that's what his parents set him up for, and it gets confusing sometimes. Hmm. Yeah. See, I don't have that experience, so I guess that makes sense. <laughs> and if anybody wants to know, well, wait, what is Bruce's first name? I'm not going to tell you. So anyway, no, I'm going to tell you. <laughs> Richard. There you go. My first name is Richard. Nice. So what are your thoughts about Joe's relationship with uh, Jim and Sam? Well, it was a, it was a part of the book that I thought rang really true because, you know, maybe not, maybe some of the actions and some of the situations are a little over the top for the characters that we know, but at the same time, I really appreciated uh, that kind of family relationship. And especially when we get, into the novel a little more we find out things more from george joe 
seniors uh, perspective where, you know, it feels like he's losing his kids and he, he feels really powerless and he does everything he can. And then especially when they compare uh, Jim Kirk's mindset as a young, as a younger kid to where he is now, you see that kind of pain that Joe is experiencing seeing these changes in his son and the reasons those changes come about, which we'll get into later as well. Uh, it's really painful. And I thought that was done really well. Kind of that, uh, that hurt that he experiences as a father. Yeah. And I, and picturing Chris Hemsworth and thinking about that portrayal of the character from the movie doesn't fit quite right in this novel, but it does work because we're looking at an older George Joe Kirk than what we saw in Star Trek 09. And he's out of Starfleet. And I almost feel it's like you said, now he's dealing with his sons and the issues he's had with his sons. And he's a little more grumpy. He's more like Uncle Uncle Owen from Star Wars at this point. You know? <laughs> and I could picture that. I could picture, picture an older Chris Hemsworth maybe not in shape. He's kind of retired and, and he's just dealing with his sons and just rolling his eyes and just grumbling and like, Oh, come on, you know, well, come on kids, you know, get, get your crap together and, and such. So, um, it was kind of interesting to see the dynamic of him really being disappointed in Sam and actually being more hopeful for Jim. So it was like, Sam has kind of gotten himself, into loserville in a sense in 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 senior's mind and with jim jim has his issues too but it it's revealed as if jim this is unusual for him that you know when he was growing up and he was younger he was a good boy and now it's only now that he's getting himself into trouble Mm -hmm. yeah it's uh it's a tough situation and yeah, like you said, I, I felt like earlier, early on in the novel, I was really picturing Chris Hemsworth's uh, George Kirk Sr. But as the novel went on, I had a really hard time reconciling that image in my head, even kind of aging him up in my head. And I kind of ended up more with a gruffer person with kind of a crew cut going on who's, you know, dreaming of his earlier days in the military kind of thing. Uh rather than Chris Hemsworth, which I couldn't, I just couldn't seem to quite make fit as we got in later into the novel. If you saw the last Thor movie, uh, I almost picture him looking more like it because we see Thor with a crew cut. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I thought of that a little bit too, but uh, yeah, (laughs) he was, he was too wisecracking and uh, a funny guy in Thor Ragnarok to, uh, to work for me. But uh, that said, I love that movie. I actually just watched it again the other night. <laughs> oh, did you? Yeah, I know. It's a great one. I love that one, too. So, And then we have Sam. And, you know, <laughs> Sam, wow, they even say he's, you know, a little overweight. He's kind of lazy. He's just kind of not doing anything with his life. And he's getting involved with this gang. Uh, this guy, Griffin, runs this gang. And even to the point that, you know, he's ready to you know, throw his brother at them. Um, I don't know. You know, I had mixed feelings about Sam in this one. I mean, he just felt like, it almost felt like if I didn't know that he was supposed to live past this, I would have assumed he was going to die in this book. 
Yeah, I I wasn't sure what to make of that character in this book because I guess when it comes down to it, we don't know a lot about him in canon that much. And I don't know why or where I got this idea, but I always pictured him as kind of more a straight-laced kid that that uh, um, pleased his parents more. I, I don't know why. I don't know where that comes from. Uh, if it's maybe in a novel I read or something, but that I just... I'm not quite remembering that, but, or it's something I maybe just made up out of whole cloth. No, I, I have think, no idea. I think you might be right. I think, cause I felt the same way. We must've read it somewhere. I'm sure there's, there's books where, you know, Jim is kind of the outgoing guy and Sam's the like, you know, Jim, you need to like calm down. You need to do, do you know, be straight and do what mom and dad say or that kind of thing. We must read yeah. that somewhere. Yeah, maybe. But uh, the other, the other thing too was he's a very tragic character because, you know, he's going through all this and, you know, at some point uh, he's going to uh, seemingly straighten out his life and marry and have a kid and then get killed by a weird neural parasite on Deneva in, in an episode of the original series, which is kind of sad, I guess. I don't know. I want to learn more about him, but at the same time, I'm like, He's doomed. Like that's that's kind of sad. I don't know if I want to learn more about him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, I kind of. Yeah, I feel the same way. But uh, yeah, very interesting situation with Sam and even his fish in the aquarium. That seemed to be the most important thing to him. <laughs> yeah, that was that was an interesting touch. I think, and I think that shows, you know, that there's there's something deeper there. There's something worth. Um, you know, he's not a complete. I don't want to use the word loser, <laughs> but you know, like he's not totally devoid of, of the things that make him a good person later on. You yeah. Know? Well, even yeah. when Joe goes to their apartment or Sam's apartment, I think for the most part it's trashed, you know, it's like clothes are everywhere and whatever. And again, that character is just kind of rolling his eyes like, Oh, my sons, you know, mm-hmm. But all parents are like that, right? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> At some point, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> my dad right now is rolling his eyes. Oh, my son's doing another literary tracks, whatever. You know. <laughs> Go spend time with your family, son. You don't need to be online doing this. <laughs> no, Do he's never the same said dad. <laughs> he's never said that. I'm just kidding. He may be thinking it, but he never says it. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about Kirk's other brother, and that's Spock. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, Spock is not a member of Starfleet Academy. As a matter of fact, he's on Earth with his parents. And it sounded like they live in some, like, Vulcan, like, commune or something, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, that's one thing I noticed this novel takes a lot from Enterprise because of when it was written. So there's a lot of little ties back to Enterprise. And in Enterprise, they mention the Vulcan compound quite a bit uh, in San Francisco. So I thought they were kind of taking off from that because they call it the Vulcan compound a few times. Mm-hmm. So I think that's kind of what they were trying to to reference there. And when I say they, I mean, so we've got William Shatner, who's the big, huge name on the cover, but on the cover also with Judith and Garfield Reeve Stevens. And I think that's where a lot of these uh, more nuanced touches, shall we say, come from. Right. Yeah, it's not like William Shatner's like, hey, 
let's pull this from Enterprise because I've seen every episode. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. And again, I think we talked about another uh, episode about the Shatner verse novels, but it's my understanding that William Shatner would work with Judith and Garfield Reeve Stevens and come up with like a basic storyline like hey about well, well, a story of this this and that and let's say kirk's getting in trouble and, and spock's there too and, and he comes up with the basic stuff and then judith and garfield Reeves steven's like okay we'll take that story and we'll fill in the other 95 <laughs> percent <laughs> we'll have a story where kirk hates starfleet uh bill that's in every star trek novel you've ever come up with yeah, but he's young and he hates Starfleet. Yes, but that he doesn't make sense. Really, we'll make it make sense. Really, okay. hates Starfleet in this one. Really hates it. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> and then Spock. Uh, wait, uh, this is true. I'm going there. I'm going there. And Spock. We find Spock in a bar. He's he's exchanging a Vulcan artifact for money. And this bar, it's really seedy. It's like a strip club. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, that's basically how this book starts off. yes that is true we get uh we get spock in a in an earth strip club and observing what's going on in the strip club and i have to say like at first i was really rolling my eyes but then some of this there's some clever writing here where spock is not reacting or at least pretending that he's not reacting. Like there's some really clever wordplay here where he's like, well, if he were human, he would be, he would probably be excited by that. And, and, but you know, his heart would, would be racing, but that certainly wasn't the case now because he's a Vulcan and, and very controlled. And then like, it's very obvious that he keeps noticing things and is kind of like, his getting a little flushed and his heart's racing and he's like, Oh, it must be the excitement of what's happening with this deal or something, <laughs> which I thought was pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's so many things about this book where you're like, okay, are we really going there? And then when it plays <laughs> out, you're like, well, that's kind of fun. That's cool. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't know. But, and, yeah. and also while they're in the, you know, that's where they run into each other, Kirk and Spock. Kirk's trying to avoid these security officers looking for him and Spock walks by and Kirk decides to get into a bar fight with Spock to distract them from seeing his girlfriend, Elisa, getting out of the bar. (laughs) (laughs) Which is also another really funny bit because we see that fight from Kirk's perspective and we know that it's Spock that he's he's picked to have a fight with and he (laughs) winds up and you know socks him on the jaw and spock's like why did you do that and kirk's like why isn't this guy getting riled up like i'm trying to create a scene here and spock's like your actions are most illogical (laughs) it's great like i do really enjoy that scene i thought that was a lot of fun (laughs) yeah i did too it is fun and we also get uh and amanda in this book and um we're also explained why Spock chooses Starfleet Academy over the Vulcan Science Academy. So at this point, I would say we're probably going to start entering into spoilers. So we've really touched a lot on the first part of the book. But um, mm-hmm. if you don't want to hear spoilers and want to read the book and come back, this is probably a good time to do that. Because when we get to Sarek and Amanda and exploring 
Spock's relationship with them, it's pretty much what we've always been told that there's this kind of rift between Sarek and Spock. And there's many scenes in here where Amanda has to go up to Sarek and like, you know, stop being like this, Sarek. He's our son, you know, <laughs> like that kind of stuff, you know, like we've seen in the show. But at the same time, um, Spock and Kirk get into trouble from all these shenanigans that they're doing. They're in trouble with Starfleet Academy and the law. And uh, part of their punishment is, well, we can throw you in New Zealand, in a New Zealand penal colony, or we're looking for students who kind of think, you know, outside of the box, like the two of you are doing. And even though you're doing wrong, it's that kind of mindset that we need in Starfleet to kind of go beyond the rules and, and think outside of the box. So either go to the penal colony or join Starfleet Academy. Mm-hmm. And also there's, there's kind of a, a man behind the, the mirror. <laughs> like there's a guy kind of influencing things and pulling strings. And he's, he's part of the Starfleet. Uh, what did they call that division? Like the department of, special operations or something like something that. Something like or, it, yeah. And his name was Eugene It wasn't Mallory. even that exciting. Yeah. Like name, it was a really boring unit title or something. Right. That but, we've never uh, heard of before. Yeah. Which made me think certain things that, you know, hmm, section 31 maybe. See, but, I didn't think that, but yeah. But yeah. the guy's name is Eugene Mallory. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm loath to bring up section 31 and I don't think it's section 31, but it kind of felt, something like that where it was this nondescript agency within starfleet that had this really boring name uh any section 31's buried even more than that so you know it's not them but you know they he seems to be doing clandestine stuff behind the scenes but uh he's the one really pulling the strings and has influence on the judge to pronounce this sentence and pulls a bunch of strings later in the book as well so it's kind of interesting that there's this force that's steering Kirk and, and Spock tangentially. They're really after Kirk though, because you know, it's written by William Shatner. So they really want Kirk uh, to kind of steer him in this direction. Yeah. I felt like between the two of them, this was more like, you know, 65% Kirk and 35% Spock. Like it definitely focuses more on Kirk than Spock, even maybe more than what I just said, but uh, Spock is a very central character in this, but it, this oh, is yeah. really a Kirk story. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, what you were saying, too, about the reason Spock joins the Academy. This is the part of the book that I was like, wait, 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 because and and they fix it a little bit later in the book. But, you know, we know that Spock and Sarek didn't speak for 18 years because Spock chose to go to Starfleet over going to the Vulcan Science Academy. And at first, when this part of the book came up, I was like, wait, he's being forced to go to the Academy by this by this jail sentence, either that or be imprisoned in New Zealand. That's not, like, that's not his choice, you know? That's, But they do fix it later. And I'm wondering, just from the way that this fix comes in later, they basically say, oh, we talked with the Vulcan government and they've said you can serve your sentence in the Vulcan Science Academy instead of Starfleet Academy. And Spock, for reasons of the plot of the book, says, uh, no, I'm going to go to Starfleet Academy. 
and that creates the rift supposedly but it felt almost like a band-aid on this like they written this thing and then somebody said wait wait that doesn't work because of the whole spock Sarek thing and they're like oh crap we need a quick fix to that i i don't know that that's the case but it felt like a really like just shoehorned in part of the book i don't know it just that's the way it felt to me it did it it felt very much like you said i mean we're we're told that he's kind of forced to go into the academy and so it's like well wait he didn't choose to be there and as i kept reconciling that in my head thinking well maybe Sarek always said you chose that because he chose his actions that led him there but i thought this still kind of felt like a stretch but then that part came that you're talking about where it's like oh well now you do have a choice and he chooses of course the opposite direction that Sarek wants and it just seemed kind of like a oh yeah we need to to correct this to what really is supposed to happen but you know judith and garfield reeve stevens they know star trek inside and out so Mm -hmm. i can't imagine i mean i would think that they probably knew they were going in that direction i i would assume yeah and that's the one thing that makes me say like it just felt that way and i don't think that would necessarily be the case uh because those two are just so well versed in trek lore and uh, you know especially having been on the writing staff of Star Trek Enterprise and and written amazing episodes that fit so well into the canon and stuff that I'm like, well, they they wouldn't have messed up on that, I don't think. But it, it just felt like the situation that Spock was maneuvered into didn't feel like how he joined Starfleet from what we know of Star Trek canon, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah, I agree with you on that. And, you know, and Spock is also, I was a little concerned for his character in this too, because unlike Kirk, where we can can accept that Kirk is kind of a bad boy in this, Spock at first comes across that way because he is doing something in a bar and exchanging a Vulcan artifact for money. And it's like, that doesn't sound very Vulcan. That doesn't sound like Spock. But then we come to find out that He's basically solving a mystery of missing artifacts from this Vulcan, I don't know, it wasn't a museum, but whatever at that, you know, what was that? I mean, (laughs) I don't remember where those artifacts were. (laughs) Yeah, I think they were, they were in the Vulcan consulate or something like that. Yeah. But yeah, like on display or something. Yeah. And then we find out that what was being stolen weren't the real artifacts and then the real artifacts weren't even the real artifacts that those were also fakes that there were all these fake artifacts and <laughs> you know and and it was assumed that Sarek was stealing them there was a whole little storyline going on about that but yeah. and that didn't really interest me all that much yeah and it got very convoluted so it turns out that the criminals who were paying for the artifacts knew that they were fakes and they were actually after the technology inside the artifacts that gave a false sensor reading to show that they weren't fakes. How that whole thing would have started in the first place, like who came up with this plan and actually had it work that I don't understand. I don't get that. I think it's kind of ridiculous, kind of over the, over the top and everything that Spock's doing, even when you find out that it's to uncover this ring, it's not logical. Like it doesn't, there's no, there's no starting point to that whole thing that makes sense that would have set this all in motion. If that, 
I, I don't know. I can't figure it. I can't think it making any kind of regular sense anyway. Yeah, because it's like Griffin's yeah. gang is doing this because this technology can disguise something to to make sensors think it's real. And so if they do that to a ship, they can disguise their ship to pe- make Starfleet think that it's a uh, Starfleet shuttlecraft or something like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But like, just think about that. So they're like, okay, we need this technology that can make something look like something it's not. So let's pretend to some Vulcans that we're interested in buying some artifacts. Like, how does that lead to... I just, and then to know that the Vulcans would say, oh, okay, and then go along with it and put that, like, it just, I, my brain starts to hurt when I think about how that actually would have played out. <laughs> I know. You know, sometimes on this show, I read a book and then we get on here and I start, and as we start talking through the book, I start to realize that I actually like the book better than I thought now that we're digging into it. This is the opposite. <laughs> oh no <laughs> like i like the book and i still do but the more we talk through it the less i'm liking it <laughs> i still like it better than the uh the one we talked about earlier what was the one with on bajor what was the name of that one uh, captain was that captain's peril peril that's the one yeah yeah <laughs> anyway so we have uh yet again <laughs> another story i don't know what's been this past year nine months or whatever we keep getting books where we end up on tarsus four and yeah (laughs) you know it's another like prequel sequel whatever to conscious of the king and we're back with dealing with kodos and and all that but now what we learned from this is that this gang that we were just talking about they're stealing these artifacts and such and and are you know even sam is willing to sacrifice his brother in, with this gang and all these things, Griffin and, and and Kirk's best friend Matthew, who are all part of this gang now, were on Tarsus Four and were employed by Kodos to find Kirk and these children to kill them. And I mean, mm-hmm. this you know a lot of this book in a lot of ways is fun, but when we get to the Tarsus Four scenes, it's very disturbing. Yeah, there there is a lot of darkness in this book. Uh, the one thing that I appreciated from that aspect of the story is, you know, that it gave a good reason for why Kirk is the way he is. And when you really think about what he witnessed, and they they expand on it a lot more here than we got in the original episode, obviously, because we don't get much in the original episode, just that there was this Kodos the Executioner and he executed 4,000 colonists, half of the population, and Kirk is able to identify him. He's one of nine people who can identify this man. And here we really get into the thick of it. We see him on the planet working to protect a bunch of kids, something that, like you said, it's very dark. He fails at and it's something that has scarred him, uh, and, and it would in his very young life to see something like that. This really reminded me of, um, uh, at one point when I was living in Korea, we visited Cambodia and we learned all about the killing fields there and the Khmer Rouge when they took power and instituted their revolution and basically, took like the part of the population that were the professionals and the educated people 
and systematically started killing them. And it, it's horrific, the stories that you hear from there. And it's the worst, the absolute worst of humanity, of the things that people are capable of. And reading this part of this of the book, that's where my mind flashed back to immediately was hearing all those stories. So it was written in such a way that it's very realistic and it's very disturbing. And there are stories in Cambodia of, you know, how children were killed and, and how that was done and stuff. And it's chilling. And that's something that really happened. So you know, this part of the book, it was, it was very, like you said, it's very disturbing for sure. I'm glad that this book uh, was on our list when it was, because we're just coming off of reading Star Trek Discovery Drastic Measures that Mm -hmm. talks about Tarsus IV. And it's more from the perspective, Lorca and Giorgio, but, and we get a little bit of Kirk in this, but this seems like you know, this is more of the Kirk story behind that. And even though the two books, you know, aren't aren't a perfect fit together, this kind of plays like for me as another storyline to what we had read in Drastic Measures. And it's like and even in the autobiography of James T. Kirk and all these stories that we read, and even in the earlier, I think it was the Avenger book of Shatnerverse or whatever, like all these Tarsus mm-hmm. for like has just really enriched that whole thing. And I've, I've never really thought that much about Tarsus four and its effect on Kirk, but this past year with all these books, I just like really look at this as a core backstory to Kirk that I think will always be carried in my mind when I look at the Kirk character and it does now Mm. the book is being redeemed with me now because now I remember (laughs) all these fun things and all these weird things are going on the actions to a lot of this is because of what Kirk went through because like you said he was 14 years old and you know when we get to present day in the novel he's 17 so this is only three years earlier I mean it's still fresh within him and Mm. And then his friends who were there, who went on the bad side of things, are now in this gang. And I mean, the actions of this event not only affected him, but these other guys. And if anything, the guy, Griffin and Matthew went one direction. And Kirk, even though he's kind of being rebellious and a bad boy, he's still a good guy. I mean, they keep saying throughout the novel, he's a good kid. And even Mallory even says he recognizes that Kirk is a good guy. He's just doing things for whatever reason. Um, and, and honestly, he's doing what he's doing to help protect his girlfriend. He's not just mm. out there to, you know, he's not mad at adults and mad at Starfleet and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that because of it. Blah, blah. He's really just trying to prove to his girlfriend and to himself that Starfleet isn't perfect. And he's trying to protect her because they may think she did something wrong when she didn't. Somebody else used her codes. But at the same time, we find out that, Kirk's dislike for Starfleet is because they didn't answer the call to Tarsus four in, in a timely manner, which led to the tragedies that happened. So now we understand yeah. his, his hatred for them. Yeah, totally. And like I said, I really appreciate that because it is a very good motivation for that character. And it is like, it makes sense that this, this um, event that we hear just a tiny bit about in the original series 
what we do hear of it, though, it makes sense that it would be this huge formative event in Kirk's life. And especially even that episode, The Conscience of the King, Kirk is the Hamlet character in that story. And it it's because of this event and what he went through that leads to his indecision in what to do, just like Hamlet in, in Hamlet. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so... For that one episode, because of the nature of the original series, that one episode, it was this huge event in Kirk's life. And then we never hear about it in another episode. But that's just because of the nature of television at the time. It was, you know, one hour stories. And once they were done, they were done. And some, it was very unlikely that anybody would ever go back to see that episode again. So it wouldn't make sense to refer back to it because, you know, they'd never heard of DVD box sets. <laughs> Yeah, and then Kirk starts to appreciate Starfleet mm-hmm. and uh, starts to recognize that we just keep repeating ourselves in history and we need to move yeah. beyond repeating those mistakes from past histories and we need to break that cycle. And he realizes that Starfleet is the thing that can break that cycle. And I just thought that, that was brilliant there. I love that piece of it. That tells yeah. you why Kirk is as edgy as he is and can push the rules, but at the same time respect Starfleet because it's a thing that's going to break history, and that's what he's trying to do. Break the rules, break history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I love, like, that feels very Roddenberry-esque to me, that distilling it down to that, that Starfleet is the organization that realized we need to break this cycle and move forward. And, like, that's that's cool. That's the Roddenberry philosophy right there. That's I love that. Yes, me too. So I know one of the things you want to talk about was also how this fits in to Star Trek canon. Mm-hmm. And, it, and this is something we've talked a little bit about throughout the other topics. But yeah, it was it was the the one thing that popped into my mind, of course, was what we talked about earlier with Spock and his decision to join Starfleet Academy and how this just didn't seem to fit with the idea of how I saw that going down. But I think the novel does enough to kind of build it back up to where it is his choice. He is given the choice directly. You can serve out this sentence in the Vulcan Science Academy, which is where you want you were going to go anyway and where Sarek wants you to go anyway. Or you can do it at Starfleet Academy and and Spock really ticks off Sarek by saying, nope, I'm, I'm staying here on earth and going to Starfleet Academy and, uh, Kirk as well. Like I said, it, it feels better if I substitute the Kelvin timeline Kirk here, just borrow some things from him because it's not how I pictured these early years going. And I don't even know that that's necessarily the fault of this novel because it's not something that's been covered really in Canon Star Trek, other than a reference here and there. And this book even takes some of those references and, and weaves them in because we know that Kirk at the Academy was not a bad boy. He was, what did Gary Mitchell call him a stack of books with legs. And that's exactly how Mallory I think it's Mallory says to Kirk, you're going to have to be a stack of books with legs if you're going to make it through, you know, the Academy. So it's like, oh, okay, they're acknowledging the canon. They're, they're referring back to it and making it fit, you know, maybe kind of crowbarring things in here and there to make it fit. But still, 
I think they do a pretty good job of, of weaving it all together. It is when you read this book, it more than likely isn't what you picture or ever thought in your head, what this period of time in their lives would be like. But then again, we haven't been given all that much information about it within the official canon of the show and the movies. And so when you read this and, and really get through the whole thing, it really starts to come together and start to add up and make sense. I think some people will like that. And I think other people still like, nah, you know, doesn't work for me. It's not my Kirk and Spock doesn't feel quite right. And I can see that. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's just, a, it's a different take on it. And, um, but as a story, I think it works and I think it does fit within canon. It's not canon. It's not necessarily, you know, the direction that every writer is going to use or go into, but it does work. One thing, and, and I mentioned this earlier about the structure of the story uh, and how it follows a very typical path for different types of stories and movies and that kind of thing. And even, like I said, Star Trek 2009. But one thing that I thought of a lot while reading this book was, oddly enough, Harry Potter. Because, you know, Kirk's going eventually to this elite school, but there's forces behind it that are kind of molding him and pushing him in a certain direction. And like at the start of Harry Potter, we got Dumbledore and McGonagall and Harry's the chosen one and he has all this stuff going on. And it seems like while he's at, at, Hogwarts, you know, Harry Potter is breaking the rules and all this stuff, but at the same time, he's got Dumbledore kind of watching over him and, and guiding him along and pushing him in certain ways to, you know, find the mirror of Erised and defend the Philosopher's Stone or the Sorcerer's Stone if you're in the US and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And this really felt to me almost like, you know, Star Trek Hogwarts Academy because, Kirk's got this, you know, Mallory guy kind of pulling the strings and making things happen to propel Kirk to where he needs to be to foil this theft ring and the general and and his troops that stem from the Tarsus Four incident and stuff. So I, I thought that was really interesting. And the more we went, I was like, okay, so who's Spock? Is I guess he's kind of Ron and Hermione jammed together a little bit. I'm, I don't know, but it doesn't fit perfectly, but that's oddly enough where my mind went through this story. That is so awesome. I like what you said there. And that's going to play a lot into my final thoughts of this book. So um, I'm going to refer back to that because that plays very well into what I was going to say at the end of this whole thing. I'm not about Harry Potter, but it works well with that. But now, excellent. you know, this book is the last of Shatnerverse. <laughs> Unfortunately. I mean, that can't be the case, right? Because I looked at the last page of this book and it said midshipman Kirk will return in Star Trek Academy trial run, right? It does say that at the end of the book, but apparently that's not happening because this book came out 11 years ago and I don't think they're going to write that. (laughs) You're kidding. I've been waiting this whole time. I just thought there was some kind of delay, but... Wow. No, I'm just kidding. Obviously. (laughs) Obviously, I know. Yeah, it's not coming. So, uh, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And again, I, as I recall back then, and I, it's just, this is in in my mind, my memory. I don't remember where I read it, where I heard it. I don't know if it's official or whatever, but I, I just vaguely remember there was something about with the new movie coming from JJ Abrams, they were going to touch, touch the Academy years and, 
Therefore, they weren't going to do any more books. That's why I put the disclaimer at the beginning. Um, mm-hmm. I remember reading this the first time and think and seeing at the end and going, oh, yeah, but I think I heard there's not going to be another book. But at the yeah. same time, I would think they'd have Shatner under contract to said, say that. So even if they were like, okay, we still have Shatner under contract and Judith and Garfield Reeve Stevens, maybe we don't touch another Academy year maybe we do another book and why that didn't happen that takes place in a different time period. I don't know. I mean, cause we haven't even resolved what happened with Kirk in the 24th century. Mm-hmm. I bet you what, what happened. I mean, this is just all guesswork on my part, but for example, those four JJ Abrams, Kelvin timeline novels that were canceled, they did still have to pay the writers, the, uh, the contracted, price for those books. So I bet you they did have to pay Shatner and the Reeve Stevenses. That would be my guess if they in fact were under contract for that book. So uh, it might've been a bit of a costly thing. I also wonder with the Kelvin timeline and obviously that feeding into why the story didn't continue, we also got the Starfleet Academy young adult books that came shortly thereafter uh, set in the, in the Kelvin timeline. I wonder if that kind of you know, they knew that those were on the horizon as well. And we're like, Ooh, this, this will get very confusing if we have two Academy book lines at the same time too. Yeah. I bet you're right on that. Um, yeah, it definitely has, I think everything to do with the, the movie coming out that they steered away from Academy. So Mm -hmm. yeah, well, I guess we're not going to get that. So, but I will say that in, in some respects, I'm kind of glad we didn't get another one because I like the way this book ends. It, it mm-hmm. establishes the direction that Kirk and Spock are going in, and the very last chapter is them parting ways. They're, you know, Kirk is, you know, they, they say goodbye to each other and, hey, maybe I'll see you around someday, and Kirk walks one way and Spock walks the other, and it kind of leaves you with the impression like, they may not see each other again until they're reunited on the enterprise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I feel like any story that would have come after this would be a very stereotypical, Oh, we've got to contrive a situation where these two are back together. And even though we know from, from later on that Kirk is this straight laced student who is a walking book with legs and that's how he's got to get through this. We've got to contrive some situation where he has to, you know, break orders and do something crazy again. And, and, you know, because I don't think a trilogy of books of him just going to classes and being a studious individual and, and doing all his homework and (laughs) being the model student would necessarily be the most compelling books. So I feel like they'd have to, you know, contrive all these things and, and do things that would probably be unrealistic in order to create more stories. And like you said, I'm kind of glad that this is where it ends. Like Kirk's going to the Academy now and, and Spock's going on his route through the Academy and, you know, maybe we'll get some stories of what happened there. Maybe not, but it does lead nicely into what we know later on. So, and then, yeah, I'm sure the second book would have had, you know, the meeting bones McCoy and, and getting all that going. Which reminds me of another series of young adults or young reader novels uh, in Star Trek that came out years earlier. And I don't recall the names off the top of my head, but um, there's 
a book that they're in the academy years and Kirk and Spock meet. And then I think it's in the second book, then they meet McCoy and, and so on and so forth. So it was almost kind of following that same rhythm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we, I mean, there'd be the touchstones they'd want to hit like, Oh, Kirk does the Kobayashi Maru and we see that play out and all that stuff. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm almost glad that we don't get that again. And it's just, it's left where it is. Yeah, me too. I think, I think it was a good end. It does, to me, it still feels like there's nine Shatnerverse novels because they follow one or the other and they just build on each other. And this is like a little one-off, like a bonus because it takes place at right. a different time and their lives and totally different. Yeah. So totally. So Dan, overall, what did you think of Collision Course? You know, there, there are a lot of things in this novel that I really, really liked. Uh, a few things that we've talked about that, you know, kind of made me go, eh, I don't know. But overall, I think this is one of the more enjoyable uh, William Shatner novels that we've read, in my opinion. So it's kind of a nice one to finish off on. You know, it leaves a good taste in my mouth. There's, it's just a, it was a good story. And, you know, it, it, it's unfortunate one way in, in how it ends that we get Kirk still with a lot of that teenage angst because of his inability to contact uh, his father and his family and, and, and his brother and stuff to kind of tell them what's happening. And we get the feeling that that's going to be something that they work with in the later books that never came. But, you know, putting that aside, I think it's a really nice place to end the story and I would have to give this one, I'm going to say four fake Starfleet shuttlecrafts. Mm, interesting. Out of five. Out of five, <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, I'm going to give this like two reviews. I think when it comes to reading Star Trek and fitting into Star Trek, I'd probably give this more of three stolen Starfleet vehicles out of five. But at the same time, it's like what you're saying before. It's like, if you can almost like just put aside everything else about Star Trek and just read this as a book, as a standalone as is, I think it plays better. I think sometimes hardcore Star Trek fans like ourselves can get so caught up in like, that doesn't seem right. Oh, I don't think Kirk would do that. Uh, You know, if you can put that aside and just keep your mind open, I think it plays better as a four-star book. And you can go into this and say like, oh, it feels like, you know, a Star Trek Harry Potter. Or if I would say if you really like the Kelvin Timeline movies and you like uh, in the first movie those Academy years and how those plays, I think this has that same rhythm, that same sense of fun, that same sense of characterization. I think you'd really enjoy it. I think there's other Star Trek fans that would be bothered by some things and some of the things we touched on earlier in the show. So I think, you know, for me, it's favoring more on the four out of five, but I think for hardcore Star Trek fans, I think some are going to be a little more disappointed. So that's why I'm kind of saying, you know, three to four. And and that's my reasoning behind that. So I, I think it's worth checking out if, you know, if you're big in reading Star Trek novels, I wouldn't say pass it. Definitely check it out and read it. Yeah, that's that's a really fair review. I really like that because, yeah, I had mixed feelings um, and I ended up falling on the four out of five side. But you're absolutely right about 
the issues that I think some fans will certainly have with that novel. And I think it kind of makes up for it when you get towards the end. So if you do start to read it, try not to give up on it. <laughs> so that's it for the William Shatner novels. You know, I have to say it's kind of bittersweet. These are novels that I'd only ever read one of. And now we've gone through all 10 of the William Shatner with Judith and Garfield Reeves Stevens Star Trek novels. And I never thought I'd say this, but I'm kind of sad to see it end just a little bit. I am too. I think I'd like to revisit this again. Not these novels, but I wish they would revisit the Shatner verse and maybe do something else in the 24th century that we see maybe Kirk's end from, you know, or what happens to Joseph. And I don't know. I'd kind of like to know a little bit more about how that plays out. But, um, but yeah, it's, I've enjoyed most of the books. I mean, for the most part, I've enjoyed them all. And, uh, you know, you wouldn't think that William Shatner would write Star Trek novels, but it makes sense that he has somebody like Judith and Garfield Reeves Stevens behind him, who of course, you know, wrote many popular Star Trek novels. So I think the blend of the two make really fun read. Yeah, agreed totally. But you know what? It's not just Shatnerverse novels that we're talking about here today. We're discussing other things here on the network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may find that you have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Earl Grey. And he's talking about how difficult it was and that he tried to do everything he could to stop what they were doing and not to kill all of those people, but he couldn't do it. And he just breaks down and he, and he cries. And it's just like this really pivotal moment where the whole facade that you've seen for Picard for over three years is kind of stripped away. And you're seeing at his very essence who he is, that he's not infallible, that he has all these difficulties. To the journey! This is Jeff Foxworthy. You might be a redneck if. Oh, Lord. (laughs) If you fall in love with a hologram... (laughs) You might be in a doomed relationship. (laughs) If you fall in love and it never really happened... You might be in a doomed relationship. If you fall in love with someone manipulative... You might be in a doomed relationship. If you can't even remember your own name. You're definitely in a doomed relationship. (laughs) The 602 Club. I'm glad you said that, Matt. I I agree with you. I think that it's teaching Jessica to still try to trust people and let them in, even though she's been through the horrible things that she's been through. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. Also, and this might be me reading way too much into this, but I feel like because Tilly ends up being so instrumental in what happens later in the Mirror Universe, part of me when I was reading this wondered if in the back of my mind, Stamets is like, I need to have one person, and Lork is like, oh, I want to make my own... Oh, Tilly, that's who you want. Yeah, okay, (laughs) sure. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. And you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts.
If Apple is where you get your podcasts, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And if you have the time, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave us a star rating and written review. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. And also that helps us be found in searches on Apple Podcasts. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find all of our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps on YouTube, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link there as well. And we encourage you to become a member of Patreon. And uh, by doing that, you can help the shows come out each and every week by being a patron. And you can do that by going to patreon.com slash trekfm. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Trek FM to get all the details. And the perks include access to episodes, meaning early access to those episodes and the producer credits and exclusive content and all these other things by being a special patron of our network and being able to access our website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, and we really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. And again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Do you have any thoughts on today's show, such as how Kirk and Spock were portrayed or how Spock might actually act if you were in a human strip club? While there are many ways for you to do that, the best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, but keep it PG. That's our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks and that'll come right to me and Bruce. You can also find the network on Twitter, that's at trekfm, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. Now, do you ever get to a point where you're listening to these shows and you're like, oh, I wish I would have known that they were going to review Academy Collision Course. I would have read it before the show came out. Well, there's a way you can find out everything that we're reading on upcoming shows, and that's by joining our Goodreads group. If you go to goodreads.com and go and search for the group Literary Treks, you can join the group. We'll let you write in, and then you can see not only what books are coming up on the show, but what books we read on past shows. And then you see the group discussing these things and such. And you don't have to participate in the discussions. You can just read them or go ahead and chime in. So go to goodreads.com and search for Literary Treks, and we'll let you join the group. And we'd like to thank... Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Shea Matala, Justin Ozer, and Jeffrey Harlan for their support of the Trek FM network and for being associate producers for Literary Treks as well. And Dan, when you're not trying to sell an artifact in a strip club, where can people find you? <laughs> well, if I'm ever doing that, I'll be sure to have location services turned off, even though I'll have my phone on me. And you can find me on Twitter, at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can find me on YouTube.com slash Productions. You can also find me on Facebook.com slash Productions, And, of course, in the Babel Conference. Now, Bruce, when you're not designing an override to help you steal that shiny new Starfleet staff car, where can we find you? I did that using your codes, Dan, just so you know. Oh, dang it! <laughs> You can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. 
And you can find me talking Star Wars on the Star Wars Report podcast. And of course, you can find that wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, I'm always in the Babel Conference. So, well, thanks everyone for listening. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.